I'm from Scotland, so please don't uh, mix me up with Merv, who I think was here last week, and he's from Ireland, so please, we take offence at that, so please don't. <laughs> but, um, I was here back in October, uh, and back then, I was, as you guys would say, I was fresh off the boat back then. Uh, back in October, I was here, I landed on the Monday, so I moved over here to marry my wife. I landed here on the Monday. I think Pastor Eric was uh, unwell that week. I got a phone call on Wednesday saying, can you preach at this church? We have no one else available. I said, yeah, okay. And then on Sunday, jet-lagged Mark turned up at Veritas <laughs> preaching. And so it's great to be back here. Uh, and uh, again, it's good to see familiar faces and new faces as well. And again, I've moved to IBC, where Pastor Briggs and Pastor Steve are the, the main preaching pastors there. Uh, my fiance is now my wife. Uh, in the middle of buying a house and things along those kind of lines. So I guess I'm kind of adulting, as you would say, <laughs> these days. And so we're going to be looking at Romans 8, as we read uh, this morning. Uh, and I'll be back here in August, I'm, I'm aware of as well. So you'll, maybe, you'll get to know me a bit more uh, as, I, as I come and preach here. But we're in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And now these, uh, for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, these are very well-known verses. Uh, again, these verses are kind of what you would call the Everest of Romans. All of the first seven chapters and the first half of chapter eight in Romans are leading up to this point. And then uh, this, these verses are sort of the turning point in Romans, uh, where Paul goes on a different direction afterwards. And I just wanted to remind us uh, of these verses, remind us of the meaning of them. We might know them well, but we can never be reminded too much of God's word and keep learning God's word. And so I hope as we uh, read these verses, uh, again, we'll come to appreciate God more, love him more, uh, repent of our sins, and just keep following Christ. And if you're not a Christian uh, here this morning, then I pray uh, by the end of this that you would truly consider repenting of your sins and turning to Christ for salvation. And so we're going to read, uh, again, uh, Romans chapter eight, 28 and 29. I'll read them again. I know we read them just there, but let me just refresh your memory, and then we'll dive right in. Romans 8 verse 28 and 29. And I'm reading from the ESV, so if you're reading from another uh, translation, it may vary. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Uh, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brothers. Let's just pray together before we dive in and, and, and uh, study this text. Father, we want to thank you this morning for bringing us here together. We thank you for the privilege we have in this country to gather freely, to worship you and to praise you. Lord, we thank you that we can come together and just fellowship with one another, speak about how you have been working in our lives with one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, and Lord, overall, that the church would be edified and that Christ would be made known. We ask as we read your word and study your word, you would give us wisdom and guidance by your spirit. Lord, may you save those who do not know you at this time, Lord, through the preaching of your word and through your spirit. And we ask, Lord, again, that most of all, we would fall more in love with you, we would repent of our sins, and that Christ would be made known, that you would be glorified. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So again, as I said, these verses are the so-called Everest of the book of Romans. 
And just to kind of a brief summary of the first eight chapters, which I'm just going to do just a kind of what the main themes of the first eight chapters of Romans are, just so you know where we are. Um, again, throughout Romans, and the first three chapters, Paul, uh, the writer of Romans, he talks about God's wrath. He talks about his judgment and his righteousness in the first three chapters. He then talks about justification by faith alone in chapter 4. And then he talks about having peace with God through faith in Christ. And he talks about dying to ourselves, dying to the world so that we'd live uh, like Christ. We see that in chapters 5 and 6. He talks about being, us being released from the law in chapter 7. And in the first half of chapter 8, Paul talks about living life in, with the Spirit's guidance. So living life following the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives. And he talks about how we're adopted into God's family. And he talks about the future hope that is to come for those that believe. Now that's a lot, that's a lot to cover in, in eight chapters. But all of that, all of those things, those themes that I've just mentioned... Paul's discussed them and talked about them, and they all lead up to these verses that we're going to look at today. And so we're just going to look at the, each verse separate. We're going to look at verse 28. We're going to look at verse 29. I'm just going to flesh them out a bit for you. And in the process, I pray that God would be glorified as we do it. And so in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, everything that Paul has talked about and all the way leading up to now in Romans is summarized in this verse. All the things in the previous chapters working together for good, for God's glory. So all these things I just mentioned, God's wrath, God's judgment, his righteousness, his justification, being able to die to ourselves, uh, living with the Spirit's guidance. All these things work together uh, for good uh, for those who are called. And so when Paul says... They work together for good. He's talking about those who have put their trust in Christ. So these things only apply to those who are in Christ. Those who have believed the gospel, repented of their sins, and turned to Christ. Those are those who are called according to his purpose. And those who love God only because God first loved them. We see that in First John 4. And so we see God working through the hearts of men. Now, this is where we want, to be, we want to explain that nothing in this world is ultimately working for good for the wicked. And we need to be clear and biblical that God calls anyone who does not put their faith in Christ wicked. God, you're, you're either wicked or you're either God's, God's child. That's, that's the two sides. There's no in between. And God makes that very clear in his words. And that may sound harsh for some of us, but we need to remember that without faith in Christ, Everyone in the world is under God's wrath, under God's judgment, and needs Christ. And they're under the wrath and judgment of God because of their sin. And so Paul says here that God is working all things for the good of his people, those who believe in Christ, for those who love him. So you've got the wicked and you have those who believe in Christ. And these things, all this working together for good, is applied to the believer and the believer alone. And when he says all things, that includes our sin. So he doesn't approve of sin, but God can use our sin and teach us through it and glorify himself through it. You see, creation, our hearts, after the fall, all these things are longing to be restored to the perfect state. Paul talks earlier in Romans about how creation groans 
just like our hearts groan because we look forward to that day when God will make all things new. And so during the time while we're in this fallen world, we're called to be holy, we're, we're called to live a life that is pleasing to God. God even uses our sin for his glory. He uses evil and wicked things for his glory. He uses evil for good. And the Bible has so many examples of when this happens. You see, we see even throughout the world, there's all these evil things going on. But God and his ultimate purpose and his sovereignty is using all these things for his glory and for our good, even if we can't see it. And we can even see this in, in uh, I've got four examples here of just in, in the Bible where God has used evil things for the good of his purpose, for the good of his people. We look at Pharaoh back in Exodus in, in Egypt with Israel. He puts his wrath upon Pharaoh so that God's glory would be seen through Israel escaping through Egypt. Now, I'm sure the Israelites at the time didn't think that was what was happening. But when we read it in the grand scheme of God's plan, we see that God was glorified through that, that Israel were freed and wrath was put upon Pharaoh. We see Joseph being sold into slavery uh, to Egypt. Now, that was an evil thing that his brothers did, but he ended up becoming prime minister of Egypt because in God's plan, he meant it for good. And even Joseph is quoted saying that uh, there. We see the book of Esther. Now, it's interesting, actually, that the book of Esther doesn't actually uh, have the word uh, God uh, in it at all. Um, however, God's sovereignty is clearly seen throughout the book of Esther, throughout the persecution of that nation. And we see that in there. If you, Esther's uh, not too long a book. If you haven't read it before, I'd, I really uh, encourage you to read it. Um, again, as I said, the word God isn't actually in it. And for whilst uh, when they were making up the canon of the Bible, it was actually disputed whether it should be in the canon or not. Um, but thankfully it is because God is clearly seen in it. And ultimately, the, the, the kind of best example of uh, something evil uh, being used for good was Jesus being killed by sinful human beings on the cross so that we may have eternal life that is the ultimate example of god using the evil hearts of men for the good of his purposes christ dying so that we may live and so we can't think that because god can work through our sin for our good however that we can sin willfully paul talks about clearly in chapter 6 and 7 in romans that you cannot willfully sin and continue on sinning and call yourself a christian if you're living a patterned life of sin with no repentance, it is very, very clear that you may not be a Christian at all, that you may not have truly repented of your sins and trusted in Christ. So Paul says that God can use the sin in our lives for his glory, but he does not approve of the sin in our life, and he would rather that we don't sin at all. And so God can use that for our good. He might teach us a lesson through it, that, we, that would ultimately allow us to learn more about him, that would cause uh, to love him more and trust him more. God will also show that when we deal with our sin, when we repent of our sin and go through that struggle of, of repenting and, and coming, uh, you know, repenting of our sin, God will show us how wicked we are. He will bring us low. He will humble us. But then that also shows how merciful he is. When you look at the cross, when you look at Christ and what he did, and you see how wicked you are, you see how graceful and how merciful and how loving God really is. And that's God's purpose. When, he, when we sin, God can use that to bring us back to himself. can use it to bring us back to himself 
and see how loving he is. And really, through those things, our, our faith and our strength and our faith grows more and more. And so when Paul says that all things work together for good, he's not talking about material wealth or even good physical health. The good is being conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. So when God says all things work together for our good, that good is being conformed to the image of Christ because ultimately, from a biblical worldview, being conformed to Christ is the best good that you can have. Not material wealth, not physical health, although those things may be nice, but being conformed to the image of Christ. That is what God wants. That is what God is actually um, most concerned about. And so being conformed to Christ is uh, the good that is talked about in this passage. So every circumstance and every event in our lives is designed by God, again, if you are a believer, to conform us to Christ's image. And that might mean going through hardships or even facing poverty with a while. And I think a lot of you will agree with me that you will lean a lot more on God when you are struggling than when you are prospering. Because our prideful hearts and our sinful hearts, what we tend to do is when we're prospering is we tend to forget about God and think, yes, everything's amazing. I did this. I did that. We did this. We did that. And then when times are hard, your last resort, and it shouldn't be a last resort, but in our hearts, our last resort is to go to God and pray. But actually, that should always be our first resort in all things, whether prosperity or hardship. And so God might put us through a trial, but ultimately it will, it will mean that we will uh, start to lean on him more, uh, grow to lean on him more, and trust in Christ more. I know just a personal example for me recently, again, is moving to this country, all, you know, 5,000 miles away from my home and my family. And I have a great family now with my wife's family and things like that. But everything I know, everything I knew is back in Scotland. And so I had to learn to trust in Christ more. I had to learn to trust in God more, that God knew what he was doing, whether that was finding a place to stay, whether that was finding a job, uh, being able to learn how to be a husband uh, to my wife, Natalie. And all. And again, these are all ongoing learning processes. But for me personally, that caused me to trust in God more than when I was in my comfort zone back in the UK. And so that's, that's just a personal example. I'm sure many people here have other examples where you have learned to trust in God through a hardship. And I would just encourage you to continue doing that because God is ultimately making you more like Christ as you trust in him more. And so this is a great encouragement uh, to all of us who love God. It's a motivation to endure the suffering in this life. And God is using it to make you more like Christ and to be sanctified. And when we have eternity in view, that this world is not all there is, we can faithfully endure in knowing that God is working all things so that we may become more like him and preparing us for the glory that is to come. One of the things that we can, again, get, get stuck in is that we get stuck in this life and we, don't act, we forget about eternity. You know, if you're lucky, you might live in this world 90 years, 100 years if you stay healthy. But then we have eternity to come, billions, millions, and eternity, infinite years to come with God. And so... I think when we start to just focus on this life and the sufferings in this life, we lose the bigger picture about what God is doing through Christ and through his spirit and sanctifying us. And so when we always remember, when we always need to try, when we're going through sufferings especially, that when there's eternity in view, we need to say, this is not going to last forever. This may last for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 
But in eternity, it's not going to matter because I'm going to be with God. There's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more pain, no more suffering. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And if we keep those things in mind, because I think a lot of the time we forget, forget about these things or don't give priority to them. When we don't give priority and we don't think about eternity, we're going to be more consumed with the struggles of this life and we're going to give up a lot easier. So I would encourage you just to keep eternity in view when whatever struggles you are going through, that you would remember that God has an ultimate plan to redeem all creation to himself. And that includes us if we would put our trust in him. And so since God has such love for his children, like a loving father, he wants what's best for us. He's worked his eternal plan accordingly for our good so that we may get, uh, so that he may get the most glory. And so make no mistake, God's eternal plan is not about us, it's about him. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though all things are working together for our good because he is a loving God, ultimately God is working all things for his glory. And that in, that. His glory includes our good. So he didn't have to use us, but in his divine, eternal, infinite wisdom, God saw it fit to use sinners like us for his glory. And we need to thank him and praise him for allowing us to be a part of that plan. And we notice here in verse 28, Paul's assurance of these things when his first words of that verse are, and we No, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Paul Paul discusses biblical hope and the attitude of assurance all the way throughout Romans. And he's just reiterating it here. He's saying that everything he has written all the way up leading to now backs up the fact that God will fulfill all these things. Paul is confident and we should be too. The question is, Do we hope that God's going to fulfill his promises or do we know that God is going to fulfill his promises? That is the question of your faith. And so Paul here has that assurance. He knows that God is going to work all things together for good. And now if you're Paul, you just think about all the things Paul went through as an apostle, all the persecution, all the suffering, the shipwrecks. And yet he can still say, he can still say, he, he again had imprisonment as well. He can still say, I know that God is working all these terrible things that have happened to me for the good of his people and for the good of those around us, that many people would come to know Christ. And we need to remember that. And we need to, again, when we go through sufferings, have that same assurance, have that same attitude that Paul had that even though I'm going through something terrible or some pain or suffering or some life trial God I know that God is working this for our good for my good and for his glory and now in the end of verse 28 Paul says and I quote for those who are called according to his purpose God has called us to be a part of his plan A plan that was created before the foundations of the world. And we'll get to that in verse 29. And that call means that we are saved by faith in Christ. Those who are called are those who trust in Christ. God is the one that calls. Remember what I said, it is his plan, it is his eternal plan. And he calls those to himself. And because of this, he is the only one who can bring people in to be a part of this plan. And he does this by calling them through the gospel 
through the preaching of the word and through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So remember that salvation only happens when God regenerates the heart of a believer. And then at that moment, they then put their faith in Christ. And that is all part of God's calling. When, when God calls someone, he regenerates their heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. And in turn, they put their faith in Christ. And so with all these things in mind, to summarize or to paraphrase verse 28, let me, I've got a paraphrase here that I, took, that I took from one of our biblical scholars. And he says here, we know that those who love God, this is a paraphrase of verse 28, we know that those who love God and do so because he has worked in them as planned through his sovereign purpose, all things will work together for their good. I'll read that again. We know that those who love God and do so because he has worked in them as planned through his sovereign purpose, all things will work together for their good. That's a good paraphrase to kind of explain, to, to emphasize God's sovereignty in working all things for the good of his people. And so as we look into verse 29, as we continue looking at these verses, verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, this is a verse that throughout Christianity, the history of Christianity has been butchered, chopped up, spun around, and given a million different meanings depending what somebody feels like on any given day. And I'm sure some of you know that or have came across that. But the only reason it causes controversy is because people take it out of context. They don't read it in, in the context of Romans and what Paul is saying. And so they don't take it in the way God intended it to be taken. And you see, when you take the, this verse especially in accordance with the rest of Scripture, you will see, and we're going to look at how, what it actually means. See, God's word never contradicts. And I'll, show, and I'll use his word, I'll use his word, I'll use um, a biblical text to show you what he means and the, the correct way to view this verse. And so, for those whom he foreknew, again, that's talking about believers. Those who God foreknew is those who have put their faith in Christ. Because in verse 28, God is talking about believers. Paul is writing and talking about believers. So to then... Switch it to unbelievers would not make any sense. So it's very clear, and throughout the rest of, of this passage, that those whom God foreknew are those who God has called according to his purpose. And the word foreknew in the Greek, and again, I might say this wrong, but uh, the, the word foreknew in Greek is prognokeo. Uh, I might say that wrong. Prognokeo, or something along those lines. I've written it down, but it's been a while since I did my Greek. So, But basically, the word there, the Greek word there, it means to know beforehand. And the word know and for new eh, means to know eh, with a deep personal relationship. Like the Bible tells us that Adam knew Eve, that same word that Adam knew Eve, eh, the, the Greek equivalent is used in the word for new. So God is saying, and Paul is saying, that God knew with a deep, intimate love before the foundation of the world. He foreknew it. He knew it before. 
And so it's the same principle. God knew us intimately. God knew believers intimately before creation in eternity. He loved us before we were even born. Thousands of years before we were born. Yet God loved you. God loved me. So when we take that biblical definition into account of what for new means, let me explain what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that God at the beginning looked down the tunnels of time into the future and he foresaw who would believe and who would not believe and on the basis of that gave salvation. That is not what it means. He didn't look down the tunnels of time and say, and see, oh, Mark's going to believe. Oh, he's not going to believe. Okay, Mark gets salvation. He doesn't. That's not what he did. That's not what happened. It's not possible because in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Scripture speaks for itself. The Bible does not need defending. The Bible defends itself very fine. It's been lasted 2,000 years, if not longer. You've got the Old Testament, five, six, seven, eight thousand years old, even older. It still stands today. God chose us before the foundation of the world. In Romans 9, if you ever read Romans 9, it expands on this, on, on, on God choosing before the foundations. God's sovereignty is in view here. He is in control of who receives eternal life and who doesn't. We are not in control of salvation. God has already decided before the foundation of the world who will receive salvation. Now, I'm sure there's some of you maybe in here, and when you explain this to maybe another believer who maybe doesn't attend this church, they might think to themselves, or you might even think to yourself, wait a minute, I put my faith in Christ. That was my decision. That was my choice. God didn't make that choice. I did. I put my faith in Christ. Well, the question, the thing is, you're right. You did decide to put your faith in Christ. But the question is, what made you decide? You might say, yes, I put my faith in Christ. I decided to believe in Jesus. But the question is, what made you believe in Jesus? What made you believe the gospel? What made you make that decision? And the answer is God. God made you make that decision. The Holy Spirit regenerated your heart first. And then that caused faith in Christ. And I'm just going to rhyme off six or seven different verses from Old Testament and New Testament that will tell you exactly what I'm saying is true. Again, I'm using scripture to divine scripture. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is a gift. John 6.44 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six sixty five, And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to God unless the Father grants it first. Matthew twenty two fourteen, For many are called, but few are chosen. The, the gospel is preached, but God chooses who regenerate, whose heart he regenerates. John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were, who were born not 
of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not the will of man that saves, it is God that saves. And here's an Old Testament example, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26. This is the last one I want to quote. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. This is God talking through Ezekiel. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I give you a heart of flesh. God is very clear that he is the one that does all the work in salvation. Scripture speaks for itself. And so no sinful fallen man could ever choose God without God intervening in the first place. Everyone has free will. Now let me clarify. Everyone has free will. Everyone's able to choose what he or she desires. But the only way that that we can desire God is if God intervenes first and saves us. In our sinful state, before knowing Christ and before having the Spirit in us, we want nothing to do with God. And so we have the will to do what we desire But the the only way we desire God is if God makes us desire him. And that's through salvation. And so there's there's countless more passages of scripture. We could be here to midnight with the scriptures that could tell you about this, that convey the same message. But the deal is this. comes down to this. God chose his own people. He, He chose his own people, those who believe, before creation, during eternity past. He did this out of his unlimited divine knowledge. Now, I'll admit, why would God choose sinners like us for his glory? It is a mystery, and it's a mystery we have to live with. There's many things that God does not make clear that we will only find out when we meet him face to face. Why would he choose to use us for his purposes? Only he knows. All he asks is that we believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we trust him. And if we trust him, all things will work together for good. For our good, we will be conformed to Christ, and it will be for his glory. John Murray, a Scottish biblical scholar, he lived uh, 1898 to to 1975. You might have heard of him. He taught uh, systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Good Scott, came abroad just like myself. He wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. If you have not read that book, read it. I have read it. It is such a good book. It is refreshing to the soul. But he wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And this this is a quote from his book. And he puts it like this. He just summarized what I've just said. And maybe you'll get this better than what I've just said. He says, Execution with God is the perfect fulfillment of the designed plan. God's designed plan. And that plan is his own purpose and grace given in Christ Jesus before times eternal. It is the pattern of determinate purpose. When God calls men and women, it is not on the moment of haphazard, arbitrary, sudden decision. God's thought has been occupied with this event, the event that when someone becomes saved. It says God has, uh, God's thought has been occupied with this event from times eternal. Hence, the moment and all the circumstances are fixed by his own counsel and will. And to summarize what he said there, 
God has foreordained, foreordained all the circumstances and events that happened in your life leading up to your conversion, leading up to you putting your faith in Christ. God ordained that. God planned that before he even created the world. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what else with. But when the moment you became saved, the moment you became a Christian, for me it was through a school friend walking to school with, with one of my best, uh, my best friends, guy who was my best mate at my wedding. Through walking to school with him for years and years, God ordained that before the foundation of the world. And I'm sure all of you have your own personal uh, glorious stories of how you came to Christ. God ordained all of those things from the beginning of creation. Before creation. And so, just to mention this, that this does not mean that we aren't to preach the gospel. You'll be going in the the route of hyper-Calvinism. But it means that we're still to witness to people. God has ordained those uh, uses as part of his plan. So, us preaching the gospel, us being witnesses to other people, that's part of God's purpose and God commands us to do that because he says, through that, I will save others. And so, don't take it the wrong way and go the complete opposite end of the spectrum and think, well, if God's ordained everyone to be saved and chosen before the foundation of the world, then that means I don't have to witness to anyone because God will save them anyway. That's not how it works. God uses the commands in his word as our obedience. Again, this is where we come in. Our obedience to his commands, he uses to bring people to himself. Now, there is a flip side to this. And it kind of shows you the whole point of the passage that we're talking about. If God chose us in eternity, then isn't that unfair on those he didn't choose? Some of you might think this, and I thought about this when I first heard this passage. Let me answer it with another question. You, see, you know, Your question is, is it unfair that God chose others, some and not others? Let me answer it with another question. The question is, what is fair? What's fair? Who gets to decide what is fair and unfair? God is the answer yet again. When you ask uh, if God is unfair with his dealings with humanity, it means you've lost sight of the state of humanity that we are in. You aren't seeing clearly how sinful we are and how perfect and holy and just God is. You see, God is perfectly just and perfectly fair. Now, the perfectly fair and just thing to do with all of us, with all our sin, would be to destroy us all and cast every single one of us into hell. That would be the fair thing to do. That sounds harsh, but in God's righteousness and our sinfulness, if we did not have Christ, God's perfectly just fair thing to do would be scrap that, start again. And that sounds harsh, but that is true. And you will know that sin equals eternal judgment. And something had to pay. Someone had to pay for that judgment. And so that is a just and fair thing to do. To cast us all into hell and to start again. However, what is unfair is that a perfect, sinless, blameless man died on the cross for our sins. That is the unfair thing. When you ask what is fair, I'll tell you what is unfair. Unfair is Christ dying on the cross so that sinners like us could be free. That is unfair. And so, yet God has declared it right. Because God loves us and God is showing grace to us, God declared it right that Christ would die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. So that sinners like us could be forgiven. And so it's not unfair that people go to hell. 
or that people come under God's wrath, that people aren't chosen by God, because it is what they deserve. It is what we deserve. But yet God has chosen by his divine foreknowledge a people, his church, whom he sets his saving grace upon through his son, Jesus Christ, so that he may get glory. And what you've got to understand is God gets glory through saving sinners and through bringing judgment on sinners. Because he is displaying in judgment, he is displaying his justice and his wrath perfectly. And that glorifies him, just like I talked about with Pharaoh. He put his wrath upon Pharaoh. And that still gave him glory. But he is also given glory by his saints when he saves them. And when they realize what they have been saved from, when we realize what we have been saved from, we give glory to God. We see how merciful and graceful he's been to us. And so all things work together for our good. That's the good things and the bad. And that includes the use of heaven and the use of hell. And so to conclude the kind of whole point of this passage is to see God's glory. We see it through his sovereignty, that he is a God worth worshipping. We have just worshipped God this morning before I came up here to preach, and he is a God worth worshipping. For everything, verse 28, everything, including salvation, verse 29, is all under his control. All the circumstances in the world are under his control. Your salvation is under his control. And a God who isn't in complete control of his own creation is not a God to be worshipped. That is a false God. The God who saved us, the God who sent Christ to die for us, is a perfect God who is sovereign, who is in control of everything that happens in this world and everything that happens in your life. And so the whole point of these two verses is that God gets the glory. That when we read those verses, that all things work together for good, we praise God and say, wow, you're working all these things for my good. You're working all these things to conform me to Christ. And then when it comes to the predestination, those who have been predestined, wow, God decided to save me before I was even born, before he even created this world. That is a God to praise. That is a God to worship and to thank. That he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, the only sinless man to ever live, the unfair thing, sent him to the cross so that we may live, yet God declared it right because he loved us so much. That is a God worth worshipping. And in terms of just thinking, how do we apply this to our lives? How do we apply this? Well, I want to speak to those who, do, who maybe have not put their trust in Christ. If there's anybody in this building this morning who has not put their trust in Christ, then God is not on your side. God has made it clear. You're either wicked or you're a saint. There's no in between. All the things that happen in your life, if you have not put your, your, your faith in Christ, all the things that happen in your life are not working for your good. You're actually living a life full of indulgent sin and, and enmity to God. And that life will only result in one outcome, and that's eternity in hell. And so if you do not believe in the gospel this morning, I urge you to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ. Because if you turn to Christ and put your faith in him, you will get to be with God forever. And everything that happens in your life will work together for your, for your good, for your conformity to Christ, and for the glory of God. 
And for those of us who are Christians, whether you've been a Christian for only a few months or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, be encouraged that if you're a Christian, if you truly believe in Christ, then everything that happens in your life is for your ultimate good, becoming more like Christ. And you can look forward to the day when you will be perfectly like him without blemish or sin. Remember, that good is becoming more like Christ. Don't get enticed with the things of this world. Just because you're not, you know, have material prosperity or good physical health, if you're falling more and more in love with Christ and becoming more like him on a daily basis, you're doing God's will for your life. And so I'd encourage you to do that, whether you've been Christian very long or not very long. Continue to do these things. And those who do believe, be encouraged that you worship a God who is in control of all things. There's nothing that happens in your life that he does not know about. Any struggles you're dealing with, God knows about them. Why? Because he is sovereign. I've just, I've just explained it. Anything that you are struggling with, God knows about it. Jesus knows about it. And the Holy Spirit will help you with it. And finally, I would just like to say, praise God for his sovereignty. Praise him because he has dealt mercifully with you by choosing you to be a part of his family. He could have allowed you to live in sin all your life and let you go to hell, eternal judgment. But by his grace, he chose you and he saved you. And I urge you, knowing that, that you go preach that to others in the outside world. Because if you keep that to yourself, you're actually sinning. You're restricting people from hearing the gospel and having the same privileges that you have. Eternity with God. And so as you think about these truths, as you understand the mercy that God has had on you, you understand the grace that he has shown through Christ, the only, the only meaningful uh, way to respond to that is to go preach that to others, to go tell people about Christ, what he has done on the cross. And if they would repent of their sins and trust in Christ, they would get to be with the Lord forever. That everything in their life would work together for their good and for God's glory. And so may all glory go to God. May we all go out here this morning knowing that we worship a God that is true, that the God we worship is worth worshiping, and that he has had grace upon us so much that we would preach the gospel to others. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this time we have spent in your word this morning. I want to thank you for your mercy to us, for your grace you have had upon us, that you used man's evil ways for your good and for your glory, ultimately resulting in Christ dying on that cross for our sins, that we may be forgiven of all the sins that we have committed and all the sins we ever will commit. Father, may we understand that salvation is not a work of men, it is a work of God, it is a gift of God, as Ephesians says. That you have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be your people. And in knowing that truth and knowing the mercy you have had to us, Lord, give us boldness to preach your word, to speak to others, whether it be in our workplace, in our families, in our homes. May we speak to others about Christ, about what he has done, and that they would know the blessings of Christ if they would repent of their sins and trust in him. 
We ask as we go from this place, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would go out rejoicing, knowing that you are a God worth worshipping. And that we would chew on these things, that we would meditate upon this text and really just think about how you have worked salvation in our lives. Even if we go back to think about, Lord, when you saved us, that defining moment when we put our faith in Christ and we look back and see how God ordained all those events that led up to that moment. And may that lead us to praise you. May that lead us to worship you. And so, Lord, be with us now the remainder of this day. Bless our fellowship, we ask. And may we do all things for your glory. And it's in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.